Hello and welcome to the Football Psychology Show. My name is John Nasori and this week I'm joined by my co-host Luke Chiverton and special guest Sarah Murray to discuss the psychological challenges of going on loan, embedding psychologists within coaching teams and what makes for effective leadership. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show. Um, I was just rereading your bio before we started recording and the range of sports that you've worked in, apart from football, is is quite something. So as well as working for a Premier League club for, for nine years, you've supported the ECB, golfers, elite athletes, lacrosse players. I One question I just wanted to kind of kick off with was, yeah. um, what can football learn from some of those other sports? Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, what a what a great question. Um, and actually, it's only now that I've stepped away from full-time football that I'm remembering previous life before football and actually some of the sports that, that I did work into and I'm now sort of seeking to, to work into to provide a variety of practice. And I think there's a lot to be learned from other sports. From a performance psychology point of view, we know that sports, you mentioned golf, and I've done a fair bit of work in golf, was one of the first sports to really have a huge uptake on on the psychology of the game many, many decades ago, originating in America. Um, but sort of latterly, I, I would look to my early experiences working in the ECB as really good example of the way in which performance psychology had been embedded as part of their program through their development programs and into their senior squads. Um, and I think what was really lovely working with the ECB was that there was also um, a, a relationship that had been, been built between the MDT team um, and with in particular uh, reference to performance lifestyle and how that sits and fits with psychology and how performance psychology sits and fits within the world of coaching. Um, so I think football has come a long way, certainly in my time in the game, but there's lots still to learn from the way that, that other sports do things. Um, and what I noticed over my time in football was increasingly and it was fantastic to see football has started to look outside of its own bubble and outside of its own world for good practice across performance uh, performance worlds, whether that's other sports or the military or education or the corporate world. Um, and, and it's good to see that happening, uh, but there could be more of it. Just before we kick off, a quick shout out to our partners, Sporting Bounce and the, the set pieces. So Sporting Bounce is the online directory for sports performance. It's uh, managed by former guest of the show, Professor Mark Jones. And the set pieces is a website which is part of the Guardian Sports Network and home to some first rate opinion on all things football. But we're going to get stuck in to, to the topic straight off by talking about loans yeah, so Sarah, this is a this is a topic we've been wanting to cover for quite a while, actually. Uh, players going on loan, temporary moves, you know, th- that could be a spell as short as a month or two, or it could be a whole season. Mm-hmm. So very interested in what the sort of psychological challenges of, of going on loan are for a footballer. I mean, obviously, as we come to the end of the season, you've got players getting to the end of a loan move. So on a professional level, it's potentially going back to a parent club and having the challenge of trying to get back into the first team again. But also on a personal level, there must be a lot of upheaval involved in kind of potentially moving from one end of the country at a moment's notice. In your experience of working with players over the sort of the last nine years, what challenges do loans and temporary moves have on them? Yeah, some of which you've you've just spoken about that that upheaval, that that change of environment, that that change of of what's around you day to day from teammates, change of coaches, and one of the one of the massive things, of course, is is that change of culture and environment, um, not just physically, but but metaphorically in terms of what the the coaching style, the philosophy of the club you're going to is, and how does that sit and fit with where you've just been and and your experiences to this point. So there's there's a great deal of um, 
of adaptability required and, and resilience to protect players um, against being sort of adversely and unhealthily damaged by loans. And when it's managed well, which I've seen it done on many, many occasions, when it's managed well, it can be the most incredible experience for a player. Um, and it can do exactly what it what the purpose of a lot of loans is, which is to develop the player on the pitch in terms of their playing minutes and, and the way they are as a, as a player, but equally to develop their experiences of moving away from home if, it, if it's a young player that, and it's their first loan. Um, and when the right support's in place, it, they come back. And I've seen examples of, of players who have come back after loans and they're absolutely thriving they thrived they felt supported nurtured um the transition into that loan club was was well thought out um and likewise the transition back in was well thought out on the flip side and that there's a flip side um to everything there can be a cost to to mental health it's really important that uh mental health which then subsequently will impact performance is taken into consideration um, and players that, that can move away from home. There's, there's feelings of loneliness, there's separation from loved ones. So your social support network isn't as strong. And there are lots of off pitch uh, changes that can then impact the, what we, we see, hear and feel from the player when he steps over the white line um, in terms of performance. Uh, equally, they might look like they're doing fine. And many players I've, you know, been, I've checked in with on loan and, you know, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. But actually they're having a conversation with someone somewhere else to say, it's kind of tough. Like this isn't going so great. So I think that speaks to the need for designated um, staff within clubs to, to be designated towards supporting those loan players, um, whether it's a designated physio and or uh, designated psychologist, designated player care. But I think what's really important is that there's someone that has that connection with the player. And of course, the, the head coach, head, the manager is, is a big player in that and, and a really busy person. But the best that I've worked with um, will acknowledge and, and remember that they've got lads or girls out on loan um, and they will maintain that check in rather than just that sense of, you know, we've got rid of you for X amount of time. Um, and, and that's when it can be when it's done really well, that it can look great. That's that's really interesting, Sarah, actually, because there's a, a kind of recommendation that's part of a, a study that was conducted by Dr. Sophie Kent um, and a couple mm. of the co-authors from the University of Gloucestershire yeah. uh, looking at the loan, loan transition. And one of the one of the kind of proposals was that loan managers should be kind of supported by by clubs, perhaps more fully than they they currently are and I think the reason for that is that it was quite interesting kind of Sophie and and her co-authors interviewed I think it was 11 players across right across the football pyramid so from kind of Premier League down to to League Two and Mm. uh, and what came out I think was that although the advice from low managers with regards to the kind of playing environment was quite useful actually in some cases because of the fact that they're ex-professionals not trained psychologists maybe there wasn't the kind of psychological mental health advice on offer mm. um at least from the low managers that, that that was needed i mean in your experience do they kind of tend to operate in in isolation from psychology teams or is that just kind of on a club by club basis I, I would say it's very much in my experience in my opinion on a club by club basis and i can only talk from from my journey and in, in the game and, and my knowledge beyond the club i was in and, and obviously the club i was in and it's interesting that actually Sophie and her colleagues suggested that, you know, future research explores 
interventions whereby sports psychs can be part of that loan transition time. And certainly my experience in, in the club that I worked in was that we had a psychologist that was dedicated to a part of part of their role was dedicated to loan players. But that doesn't mean that that psychologist had a great relationship with all the loan players and would be the go-to to go and support them. What it meant was exactly as Sophie and her colleagues were, um, were suggesting, which is that that psychologist um, supported the physios, supported the head coach with their communications and their interactions with, with the loan player. So that I guess, um, and, and it's really, it's a bias of mine, but it's so important to look out for the people looking out for the people. So making sure, you know, like you said, that the coaches and the physios and, you know, the strength and conditioning guys and girls um, are not trained psychologists. They're not trained. Their expertise is not mental health, but they will often have to work with a lot of players that, that will come and be very open with them, which is fine as long as they then have that support. And I think it's core that sports psychologists can, um, we can be in a really good position to provide that for them. You mentioned uh, there, Sarah, that one of the challenges for a player is moving from a club with a different culture or a different different kind of way of working uh, and kind of having to adapt yeah. to that. I was just thinking about one of the interesting points you made there around having a psychologist at the parent club kind of working with a player while they're on loan at another club. Mm-hmm. Is there a situation potentially where there's barriers put up by the club where the player has gone on loan to in terms of too much contact back to the back to the parent club or too much involvement potentially with the psychologist if that's mm-hmm. not a big part of what they do in, in terms of their day-to-day operations is that something that's that could present a challenge in, in that scenario yeah it definitely it definitely could because I mean and I'm sure we might talk about it later on in the show you know we are not awash with um, yeah. psychologists properly trained fully qualified experienced performance psychologists sitting within Premier League football or championship League One League Two across our our, our football um, kind of um, platform in this country so it would be really usual that clubs that we would send players out to the club that I worked out the players would be going to a club where there wasn't any sports like support um, and actually in a way that the, that was easier for me as a practitioner because actually I, I didn't have anyone to hand over to um, and I but I would always always recommend and um, work with the player to actually share as much as the player could so for that player to share who they are, their, their experiences, what they work on from a psychological point of view with someone at that parent club. And for some players straight away, you know, I remember working with a, a lad and he'd made a really good connection with the physio straight away at the parent club. And actually he was happy after me discussing with him, you know, the work we'd done that some of what we did, I shared some of the themes with the physio, which really supported the physio to support him better, which was great. Um, other examples whereby players you know as you, they don't want to 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 work with the sports psych at the the club but they want to continue working with the club that that I was working at with either myself or or a colleague and i think just being as transparent as we can with the loan clubs about you know these are the resources we've got this is the contact we're going to have um and when it's done well the 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 match for that specific player going to that specific club in an ideal situation should be a good fit if due diligence has been done well in terms of what is going to be best for this player, not just from a football point of view in terms of what position they're going to play and what the playing formation is, but from a who they are, um, then, then it's all smooth. But, but of course, like anything, we get it wrong. Football gets it wrong. And, and likewise, I've, I've experienced working with players whom we have worked really hard and opened communications with the loan club because 
they have um, actually, at worst case, they've suffered real mental health problems and issues as a function triggered by um, the misfit between them and the and the loan club. Um, and on those experiences, I, there are several whereby we managed to recall the player because actually it was the best thing for the player um, and agreed that with a loan club. In worst case, we've had to just really support them through it to the end of, of that period of time. That's so interesting, uh, Sarah, because I think... You know, there's an assumption sometimes that uh, players are either kind of just parachuted into clubs on the last day of a of a transfer window, and there's just kind of no support whatsoever, or that there's kind of a great deal of kind of planning. But sometimes, actually, yeah. that kind of halfway house can kind of bring its own own challenges. It was really interesting when I spoke to Sophie and asked her about some kind of good practice examples. She mentioned Bristol City and, and Wolves, who potentially two clubs that people might not necessarily kind of reach out for when when they're you know thinking about good loan mm. loan practice and one of the reasons that she mentioned Bristol City was that she said that they were very upfront basically about why players were going alone and what the path was for those players so she said that you know Antoine Semenya he's now a first team regular was sent to Bath on loan mm. and she was saying it was really easy for him to see a pathway to the first team because there are loads of players that had gone through that before the club were very transparent about the reason for him doing it to get experience at a, of a first-team environment at a lower league club. Um, but it, I, on the flip side, you know, her study also kind of said that actually there are loads of players that just don't get that. It's very much a kind of, you know, Sunderland till I die, last day of the transfer window, player X, you're off to this club, that's it. Um, yeah. Again, kind of how common is is that in, in your experience? No, it's common. It's it yeah, it's really common. And I've worked with players who have given me a call the night before and and you know I've said, you know, wh- where are you at? What's happening? And they said, you know, it's eleven o'clock at night. They said, I got the call an hour ago, I'm in training tomorrow. Now, when they say I'm in training tomorrow, they're currently in, you know, I don't know, the northeast of England and I'm in training tomorrow, and that means I need to get myself to the southeast of England, to this new club that I'm gonna be at for nine AM training tomorrow. And, and I'm on the phone with them and it's an 11 o'clock the, the night before and, and and the player, he's in he's in the northwest of England right now and it's ho- it is, it is home club. Um, so, and, and there's no doubt that that all all athletes will deal with that in, in a different way. They'll cope and their ability to cope with it is based on who they are, their previous experiences. But there have been many times where, where that's really um, sort of elicited panic and worry and concern. And, you know, my God, like from a logistical point of view, like, you know, the organisation of it, the organisation of what's the roof that's going to be over my head. Have, have I got a bed to sleep in? Uh, where is the training ground? Am I taking my car? If I'm taking my car, great. Or oh, how do I get there? You know, the little things that when they're in place and when the, the due diligence and the, the kind of the organisation pre-loan has been put in place, absolutely fine. But when it's a last minute, which sometimes through no fault of the club, it is because that's the nature of the game. What what are we doing to make sure we still are making that the smoother transition that we can? If I'm getting a call at 11 o'clock and I have to be in at 9 a.m. the next morning, okay, great. As a, If I'm a player, who's going to help me with this? What have I got? And yeah, it, it's massively important. It's massively important. And it can frame then the, the first impression of the loan club towards that player. Because when the player turns up at 9 o'clock the next morning and they're, they're panicked, stressed and frustrated and they're asked to go and do a 505 left and right physical testing the <laughs> first impressions are everything and then there are players that then feel they've let themselves down before they've even started or the gaffers like not happy with them 
before they've even started, which, of course, um, is really, really unhelpful. And Sarah, John touched on something else uh, in what he said there, which is around good practice amongst clubs would be clubs that have a good dialogue, particularly with a young player to say, right, this is why you're going on loan. This is how this move fits into your career aspiration. I was just interested in what your thoughts were around what a club and I guess with the support of sports sites should be doing to kind of help, yeah, help the players with the why and the understanding of why it's good for them and and what what the strategy is, I suppose, behind the loan. Because the example we just gave there feels a little bit, you know, undercooked and dropped in at the last minute. Whereas actually if something's thought through and a player realises that there's a purpose behind what they're doing, that's a easier to you know make them feel comfortable and, and, and actually support their development as a footballer I guess yeah 100 percent. and communication is key and even if that communication is last minute because these things are are time time pressured and they are they are um squeezed in last minute and it does happen but even if it is last minute there still should be conversations in the run-up to that 11 o'clock phone call for the days previous or the weeks previous or the months previous, signposting in the language, in the communication from the head coach or the manager towards that player that this could be coming and this is why and and keeping that open. Um, And I think what's really important is that as coaches, um, much as we have to as sports psychs, it's really important to check the, the reception of what it is you're communicating with the player because again I've worked with coaches for whom will say well yeah but you know he knew it was coming we've had this conversation but the player's not actually received it in that way the player's received it in a way of saying well you know thinking that it's not going to happen or or it was still a possibility whereas the coach's his intention or her intention was that the player would 100% of course they 100% know so never fail to 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 keep communicating that and keep those uh, lines of communication open but then of course there's no time is that especially kind of important with younger players? Because uh, I, I guess older players, a lot of what you talked about there, I, I guess they should have a level of maturity to kind of deal with some, some degree of uncertainty in, in, uh, in, in their careers. And they probably have got experience of moving. Whereas with younger players, it might be that they come through a youth system within one club and then all of a sudden being asked to go and uh, fit in a totally different environment. Like that must be the pitfalls yeah. for a young player must be greater. Yeah, many pitfalls, because then there's that kind of catastrophizing thinking that I've heard of, you know, well, this club doesn't want me. Clearly, they're, they're doing this exactly, and, and yeah. they're not they're not going to bring me back. And that that threat and fear of, you know, they're, they're not going to bring me back. They obviously don't think I was good enough because if they thought I was good enough, they wouldn't be sending me out on loan. And, and again, that's down to the framing of the conversations and the culture and the environment. And, and all clubs will differ on this. Um, you know, my journey with the club that I was at um, was it's not that mistakes weren't made, but generally speaking, every effort was made to make sure that things don't fall down the cracks when preparing a player to go out on loan, particularly a young player, like you said. So that's um, parental communication is really important. You know, if we're thinking about the really young lads um, and they might not be moving, moving either. They might literally just be able to stay in their digs, but they are going to be playing for another club. But that in itself is still can be a real source of stress for them because it's still the unknown and it's still this, you know, again, that expectation of, well, you know, I'm Johnny and I'm a, from a Premier League Academy or Premier League club and I'm going to League One. So therefore, I should be the best. Therefore, I should be in the starting level. Therefore, 11. Therefore, and again, that comes with, you know, this is just some of the narrative I've, I've worked with players on over the years. Um, and so there's, there's a lot, a lot to think about when, when we send players out on loan and when we bring them back. Um, and the communication is key. Again, so such an interesting point, Sarah. Um, I was just just kind of thinking about some of the other challenges that uh, were raised in that, that paper that we've, we've talked about. And I, one of the things that really struck a core with me, actually, was that 
the the players that are interviewed, a few of them talked about uh, something I haven't really thought about, just resentment from from teammates at the loan club that they were going to. So kind of basically, you know, as a result of displacing players that were mm. part of the, the squad al- already. Um, and I, I was just, just wondering, you know, in that, that kind of situation, what, what kind of support can you provide? Cause I mean, that's, I suppose it's all, it's, it's one thing kind of getting used to, I don't know, some new digs or mm. maybe kind of stick from the crowd. You know, those are things that I suppose you potentially kind of not expect, but you know, you kind of legislate for to some extent, but when you basically get it in the ear or not, not quite like that, but you know, you, you're, you're not feeling at home within the dressing room that you're in. That's, that's a whole different challenge. I, I, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's only so much that can be controlled for by the parent club. Um, and as you said, we, the, the parent club can control to a point, but cannot control the response of, of the players or the staff or, or things in that, in that loan club. And that's why the, the, the match of environments is important. But then I've also, I mean, I think back to an example uh, four or five years ago. Um, and I remember there was a there was a goalkeeper that I worked worked with, and actually I remember working with the coaches in the loan the loan department to think about where he was going to go out on loan, as being deliberately a very different environment to to the one that that I was working in with him to our club to the parent club. So rather than matching it to be sort of you know similar, so therefore he'd feel at home and you know it would it wouldn't wouldn't be too much of a change. There was a deliberate sense to to to, and this was worked with through the parents as well. Actually, he was a, a second year scholar at the time to put him in an environment where potentially there was going to be everything you just said. The players might resent him being in there. He was going to need to, um, he was going to need to really kind of build resilience and communicate and develop in terms of his communication as a player skills with staff um, and being a two way thing, um, which which was, it actually worked out really well. I mean, there's every chance and there are examples where these things don't, but it worked out well because, again, we, we said you're going into a place that's going to be very different and actually he, ex- he experienced resentment from, from other players. And it was tough. He found it really hard, really hard. Um, what he did have was the backing from the staff um, and eventually he, he got the backing from the changing room as well. But that took some time and that took some digging into performance to ensure that that he stepped out and, and did his thing and controlled his performances and things. And, and he, he built into himself, um, matured and was an absolutely different, a different player and a different guy, a, a different guy when he came back in, um, more confident, would give eye contact, communicated with staff. And it's one of the examples I'm smiling as I'm speaking about it because you know, he went on to play uh, League One football, I think, and I'm not sure if he's still playing, but that experience will have served him so well. It's a really in- interesting insight in what you just said there, uh, Sarah, which is, and, and perhaps there's listeners of this show, this podcast that might, might, might just think that this is common practice, but you, it sounds like you as a sports psychologist were actively involved in the kind of planning and the scoping and the scouting of kind of potential loan moves for players from what you just described. Is that, is that something that's common across, the, uh, across clubs in elite football, particularly the premiership, say? No, not to the best no. of my knowledge and my yeah. experience. And I was involved rarely. Oh, okay. So I can speak to the examples I have. Yep. But for every example I have where I was, there are 10, 20, 30 yep. where myself or one of the performance psychologists wouldn't have been. Um, however, um, I would say it does look different in every club. And, and my experiences across clubs would be that it's rare 
to even have the psychologist available or there as part of the club, as part of the the, the coach's world in the first place. Um, you know, I, I was privileged to work for a club that was far ahead in terms of that, um, but still could be better. We can always be better. Leads us nicely on to our second topic of the show, actually, which is... It's like um, you planned it. It's almost, <laughs> almost. It's almost, almost like we've, we've planned it. And regular listeners <laughs> of the show will know that is definitely not the case. But, um, <laughs> but uh, the second topic uh, that we're going to look at today is is the role of psychologists within in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So Dan Abraham has tweeted, I think it was earlier this, earlier this week, um, yeah. that it, it kind of beggared belief in, in his words that no elite club had a, in his in his knowledge anyway, had a, a psych sitting within its its coaching team. I think probably worth just kind of digging into this a little bit. Um, so I think what he's talking about there is a a psychologist that's not just kind of on the training ground because, you know, we've spoken to quite a few psychologists on this show mm-hmm. that do exactly that, you know, really, really kind of ingrained within the kind of training ground environment. But I think what, what Dan is probably kind of saying there is that they have kind of an active role and maybe a role which is slightly higher in profile potentially than, than is typically the case mm-hmm. as part of a coaching team. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he's kind of alluding to whether that psychologist would be involved more actively in selection um, or not. But um, I think he's certainly talking, as I said, potentially about a more high profile role than, than is traditionally the case. Um mm-hmm. So, Sarah, what are your views on, on that? Because Dan himself actually kind of said at the end of that post, he said it might not be that all psychologists agree with that that view, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and straight away my mind jumps to um, Ian Mitchell, who is a um, sports psychologist working um, with the England team, working alongside Gareth these days. But he started off at, I think it was Swansea. Ian, if you're listening, and it was Cardiff, I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> but, but, was, but, was, but was frequently um, photographed. And, and to the best of my knowledge, you know, he was very much part of the coaching team. And, and I'm going back many years. And, and since then, I can't, off the top of my head, Think of an equivalent whereby actually you have that that psychologist that is seen and sits and fits within that world of coaching day to day within those conversations um, as a as a, a, a I think Dan Abraham described it as a polygot you know a sporting polygot you know the 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 kind of experienced person that would would support the coaches to um, manage conversations to work alongside players to to think about you know their own behaviors and actions to think about the impacts of mental health on performance and and all the things that an experienced sports psychologist can be really useful for and there is a there is a part of what Dan Dan's post was was saying that I straight away you know in me triggered the 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 values and, and and I absolutely would go yep totally you know I you know coming from a personal point of view I, I think it's it would be fantastic wouldn't it if the the Premier League in particular or, or just broadly our league football in this country um, we stopped putting headlines about when a sports psychologist works with a player my goodness can you imagine Tomorrow's headline being, you know, Liverpool first team player goes to see the S&C for an hour. <gasps> Imagine. Um, so that sort of, di- I digress a little bit, but um, I guess it speaks to, to the normality of it, to the fact that, you know, somebody in that position and be it a sports psychologist, because I think it's really, and Dan alluded to this, it's really person specific. So I know that my my professional philosophy, the way that I practice as a sports psychologist is is very much um, I sat and I was part of in my previous club, 
part of the coaching world. I sat in the coach's office, sat next to them, the daily conversations, I was there. Um, and that's a function of, of me and who I am. Sporting background as a PE teacher, I'm used to being in kit, out on pitch, working with and through coaches. But that doesn't mean that it, it fits all sports psychologists in the way that they practice and the way that they they would um, get the best out of out of what they do. So I think, and it, it sounds like such a psychologist answer, doesn't it? You know, I'm sitting on the fence. It does depend. It does depend. It depends on the person. But the principle of of the post that Dan put, um, I just it does beg a belief that the sport with the most money is last to the table with integrating sports psychologists so integrating them rather than having you know yeah we have someone that drops in a morning a week or someone that sits in an office and the players can go and talk to them and we move, we are moving away from that in football um but it's last to the table when we look at some of the practice across other sports um there's lots to be learned and that was something i i when i got the job in 2013 i got the job based on having a conversation with a, um, the director of football operations at the club. And, uh, and I remember saying, I just would love to have a meeting with you because I assume you've got a team of sports psychologists because at the time the club were, were a Premier League club. Um, and I just made an assumption. It's football. Of course they would. Um, and little did I know that back then they didn't. And we fast forward nine years. It's in a much better place. But it's still, we're still having this discussion today. It is interesting, Sarah, because I think as, as recently as when Ralph Ranić took over at Man United, there was a headline immediately about the fact that he'd brought in a sports psychologist to work with the team, and John and I Imagine were reading that. it <laughs> exactly. We mm. were sort of aghast at the fact that that would still be making a headline in exactly the way you described. And go, mm. going back to the point around integrating psychologists into the coaching setup. Now, I mean, obviously, we talk to Misha, we talk to people like you, who probably are very integrated into into what a club is doing. Is there a a potential shortcoming to to that though, which is that do psychologists not want to be seen to be part of the decision-making structure of the club in terms of maintaining that kind of integrity and confidentiality and and trust, I guess, with Mm -hmm. with the players that you work with. So is there a, there is a balance to be struck presumably between, between the two options there as desirable as they both are. Yeah, absolutely. I um, it's, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently, given that I've stepped away from nine years of what I would say, full immersion and and there's there's in terms of sports psychology there was a great analogy that that my very good friend and colleague Elliot Newell used um recently if you want an apple so sports psychologists we're a piece of fruit if you want an apple you're going to go and have an apple and next to the apple in the bowl is the orange the snc and next to the orange is the kiwi the the coach now everything sits in the fruit bowl but, but they're all fairly separate from each other, right? And whatever you might need, you might go and have at any one time. Now, we are moving, in my experience and my opinion, we're moving away from that, although for reasons you've just suggested, that still might have a place in terms of players knowing that there's little connect- connection between the fruit and the bowl because they sit separately. Um, and then we see, we sort of, we move on and, and the, fruit, the fruit becomes a fruit salad. So, so the apple, the kiwi and the orange get cut up and they get put into the to the same bowl in little pieces. And it looks like they're a bit mixed in, a little bit mixed in. So we've got a little bit of immersion here. We've got the sports psych and the SNC and the coach and they're they're having those conversations around around the player, around how to get the best out of them, which which again, you know, that that can look great because psychology is being done, you know, but the psychologist is still there in that in that fruit salad. Or are we working? And I probably would say that I, I was moving towards more of a smoothie as I, um, as I stay with me here, as I entered the, the, the last phase of my time at the club, because actually 
the, the fruit in the, in the fruit salad had been mushed up so much that it just created a smoothie. And you didn't really know where, where psychology, S&C, physios, medical um, coaching staff actually started and ended. So if we think about specifically psychology, it sat everywhere in that smoothie. In that glass, there was psychology and everything. And it wasn't coming just from the psychologist. And this is when it's at its best, in my opinion. Um, so my work was with and through with and through the system. And when you step away, if a, if a psychologist steps away, the psychology still goes on every day in the system. Um, and that is, that, that I think is, is fantastic. And, and players really can benefit hugely from that. But to go back to what you were saying, um, I've been reflecting on my experience of full immersion with regard to there are times when my identity as a sports psychologist, I, I had to really question my purpose because is my purpose to serve the player in front of me um, and to work with them. Yet my employer is the club. And long-term, if I work with that player in front of me, they're leaving in six months time because they're out of contract. So the work we do will serve them well in years to come. And that, that means a lot to me. I'm a humanistic. That's fab, but it doesn't serve the club. The club pay my wage. So actually, if we're thinking long term for psychology embedded within a, within a football club, actually working with and through staff and the system so that we create this smoothie rather than the fruit bowl or the fruit salad um, is, is a fantastic way to move forward. Because there are players that I, I am sure over the years would have seen my fully immersive and fully integrated approach. And, and I know it would have um, stopped them coming to ask for help or coming to ask to, to want to work with me because perhaps they thought I, you know, was very close with the coaches. That's such a useful analogy. So I really, I, I, I wasn't expecting to, to talk about psychology smoothies on, on this show <laughs> today, but I just think that's a really, really useful way of kind of, of thinking about it, uh, actually. I mean, it is worth, I suppose it's worth saying, actually, that um, regardless of, kind of how integrated those kind of elements of mm. of uh, a club's backroom and kind of coaching departments are um that has it's been interesting this season i think to see some of the some of the kind of progress i mean kind of stripping away the headlines that have been made um that that the premier league is making potentially in terms of kind of recognizing psychology so you know, we talked about that manchester united have appointed a psychologist i know that spurs very recently advertising um yeah. quite kind of markedly for a head of psychology to, to come in so those were the, the kind of only two remaining kind of big six clubs without psychologists at the start of the season so it is interesting to see now that again jury out on how on, on how these appointments go but um you know that, that some of the elite clubs are looking at, at psychology in a way they weren't previously yeah, it's, it's going in the right direction there's huge change since i stepped into football in 2013 compared to now and, and i would always i think um defend football because i i am in a in a privileged position whereby i was part of a club that that embraced me um me as a female me as a psychologist um, and I certainly wouldn't have had a journey for so long in one club if if it wasn't a, a fantastic place that that was wanting to be better, wanting to understand and learn how how psychology across and within a system can can really benefit that performance environment. So yeah, I mean, am I? 
is it the psychologists that, that are being appointed to these clubs to be psychologists, to be the apple? Um, or actually, are they going in and it gives them, coming going in as the apple actually gives them an opportunity, doesn't it, to, to then become the fruit salad, to then, if it's right for that environment, create a smoothie whereby there is psychology in, in everything every day. And if that psychologist, the apple leaves, the smoothie's still still there. And presumably, I mean, this is a really difficult question, so I apologise in advance for even asking it. But presumably, the reason so many clubs now are kind of jumping on this on this wagon, you know, belatedly, mm-hmm. is because there must be a correlation between the clubs that do this well and and the success that they have. So it must finally have gotten to the point where people can actually see that it's it's a performance thing as much as a as much as a duty of care thing. Say everything is underpinned by by yeah. performance is 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 everything, right? Because if we you know, I talk a lot about well-being and the narrative of well-being and performance. It's not all performance. So again, it's it's. I guess it's the back to the fruit again. If we've got well-being as the orange over here and we've got performance as the apple over here, they don't operate and they don't taste as good separately as when you when you put them together and stick them in a blender. Um, and actually, no work I've ever done on performance has ever been not underpinned underpinned yeah. by well-being. Um, so I guess we're changing it. The narrative culturally is changing. It's not the fluffy stuff. We know, I know that when an athlete, a footballer's well-being is looked after, um, we know who they are. We know a little bit about them as a human first beyond football, and we can help them explore that and understand it. And we can, we can, we see happy players. Happiness has a place because when they step over the white line, the performance increments are fantastic and we get great performances. Um, so I think there's a cultural thing here beyond just sport and beyond football as to why it, the uptake is now high and the narrative around well-being and performance rather than or is is now being um, taken by all the, the big six clubs and, and beyond. So our, our kind of third and, and final topic for, for today is, is leadership. Um, so... A lot's been made about about Jurgen Klopp's um, leadership qualities after Liverpool's penalty shootout win in the FA Cup final, um, and, and kind of similarly, kind of Pep Guardiola's coming for for criticism for his leadership style, which a lot of people have suggested seems to kind of inhibit his his players' ability to cope with with highly pressurised moments, especially in the in the Champions League. Um, so, what what qualities make for a, a good leader in a in a football setting, in, in your opinion? Authentic curiosity, um, compassion, um, a balance of they will uh, care passionately and challenge directly. So that that sort of um, the balance of challenge and support and, and leaders that that can make a connection. Um, and, and I know I'm speaking from a place of bias in terms of my values and who I am and what I value in leaders and what I've worked with. And, and seen to be really effective in the football world. Um, and yeah, things that I perhaps haven't and lots of experiences where I've seen leaders that, that don't show, that show limited empathy, limited compassion, have no understanding or interest in, in anything beyond the pitch. Um, and I've seen the impact on players and, and therefore performance. That is interesting because it's a, it's a combination between kind of challenge and, and I guess, that care is is what you've kind of described there, isn't it? And actually, talking about, um, I mean, Jurgen Klopp is one of those people who who does get a lot of plaudits for treading that line, 
exactly the right way i think you, you could tell that he's probably the kind of person who if he had something to tell you that you'd done wrong that he wouldn't he wouldn't be backwards in coming forward but you also <laughs> yeah. know he'd be a person who ultimately had your your you know as a player would have your best interests at heart which yeah. which has been i mean going back to what john said about the penalty shootout i think there was an excellent thread on twitter by uh gear Jordi, who sort mm-hmm. of described the way jürgen klopp went up to each of the players that were that were designated penalty takers mm-hmm. and kind of went had a had a one-to-one conversation with them and gave them a hug and i think he described it as kind of intimate safe and loving which which really captures a lot of the things you just said really yeah it, it does and it was a great thread um and and i i retweeted it and and a, again confirmation bias for me and the things i really value and what he was talking about yeah. and and i think we could i don't know is the bottom line and neither does gear i'm gonna i'm gonna guess i don't know what was said and we don't know what we said and i don't know what thomas tuchel said i we just don't know we can only we can only observe what we see in terms of physical actions, in terms of body language. We don't know the words that came out. And, and it was interesting, a colleague of mine actually sort of gave me that argument when I was discussing it with them the day after and said, you know, actually, I got thinking, you know, how on earth do we know that that was the case? We're just presuming and, and we're, we're kind of being just favourable in, in terms of that. And would that tweet have meant the same? And would it still have been valid had they not won the shootout and et cetera, et cetera? I mean, context is everything. But I certainly, there's enough evidence, observational evidence from Jürgen to, to I would like to think, and I've not met him, to, to suggest that actually there are elements of his leadership that, that show compassion, the hug, the, 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 the little touch on and pat on the back of the shoulder of the player. And there are, there are small things that, if we're paying attention, would point towards really good leadership. And, yeah, they seem, to some extent, slightly trivial things, but they matter, don't they? Because, I mean, it was interesting. Mm. I remember Dan Donerke on on a show we did, uh, I think, just prior to, just after Christmas, was saying we were talking about recovery from injury. And he was talking about a manager that he knew, um, you know, Dan worked at, at Everton, Aston Villa, uh, to name a couple of clubs, not sure if it was one of those, but a manager that, that he knew who would not speak to players that were injured, just refused to. And I, I just, I, and you, that seems kind of laughable frankly but you know I think he was talking from very recent experience so uh yeah that kind of compassion that you were just kind of touching on there Sarah um is 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 so important and again I think with with the world we're in right now and we're just off the back of a as we're recording this now in 2022 we're we're still in the midst of a global pandemic and there has been a lot happen to the lives of these young young footballers over the last two years and and staff within clubs that has shifted the way that we think and has pointed towards a more compassionate approach and then when we also see the performance results from that and 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 we realize that it's not there to to block before it actually enhances it then leaders that are seen to to be compassionate and understanding um, but balance that with challenge and, and high expectation because of course that that is performance sport they are seen they're held held in um, really high regard and, and going back to the question Sarah around what it what makes for effective leadership I mean you know really difficult one to ask you there's probably reams and reams of academic theory about about what makes what makes good leader human beings probably still haven't cracked it but I'm I'm assuming that um, ultimately at the heart of of good leadership is is probably enabling and empowering players to kind of be themselves express themselves probably show leadership of their own Um, is, is that is that what you would consider effective leadership I think you I think you also nailed it in in the sentence you just said about 
as human beings, we still haven't yeah. cracked it. A yeah. good leader will know they haven't cracked being a good leader. That in itself, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole here, but that in itself is, is, a, is a good leader, someone that, that knows that they are not the finished article, that holds the mirror up to themselves and therefore will support others to do the same rather than someone that, that certainly wouldn't, wouldn't do something that they expect then of their players, role modeling these behaviors. Um, and yeah, understanding that what works for, for Johnny, how I get the best out of Johnny and my communication and his world and why he does what he does is different to Jesse over here. And so therefore I can flex and adapt my relationship and my communication style and the way in which I get the best out of them, because actually I've been curious in the first place to care about how I get the best out of them and what, what I can do to support them to thrive, support them to thrive, not give them their pro career and give them everything. Because of course, no coach in the world can, can do that. We constantly reference uh, a few interviews you've done on this podcast uh, with people who wax lyrical about Carlo Ancelotti as a particular coach. I don't know if you were going to say this, John. As a particular that's, that's coach, he was very, very, <laughs> he was very, very self-aware in the way you just described Sarah. So you know, he's obviously a manager that's uh, you know hit, hit some fairly key records mm-hmm. this season with the with the honours that he's won. And actually, we we've spoken to two people that worked with him, and both of them said exactly the same thing, which was that he recognised that he need to, needed to work on himself as much as needed to work on his on his players and his staff mm-hmm. and would always kind of sit there and say it doesn't matter what I've achieved in my career I, I've got more to learn there's more for me to develop and, mm-hmm. and he was actually very early in his managerial career kind of working with psychologists to say help me to be a better coach as well as kind of help my players to be better players so yeah he's, he's a sure. good example of what you just said yeah sure exactly and as a psychologist am I am I the finished package no will I ever yep. be no do I have supervision and support and coaching from other psychologists or look to other areas to, to develop myself absolutely and and yeah I, I think it's really important particularly if we then as our role either as a coach or a psychologist is to help others to do that yeah and just picking on leads but I think it's really important as well that you know when those kind of moments that that kind of color Ancelotti is involved in are highlighted publicly um so for example recently I think there was a picture after the after the Madrid win against City and he was seen I think this is probably maybe going into the last few minutes for extra time where he was seen basically kind of consulting with the players. I think it was like Tony Kroos and someone else on the touchline. And again, Fabulous, we don't know what was, wasn't it? Yeah. We don't know what was said, but mm. it, you can kind of, the very fact that he is doing that, he's so, you know, in an environment like that, that he's in, that he's not inhibited and thinks, yeah, yeah, of course I'm going to mm. consult these players. These are experienced mm. internationals whose opinion I value. I think it is really important to call that stuff, call that stuff out because, um, Sometimes it can be seen as wrongly, I think, potentially, in my opinion, kind of trying to um, delegate away responsibility when, um, you know, I think that's, as Luke said, about empowering your players. That was a really nice picture, wasn't it? And again, what we've done is we've created a story about that picture, like Gear created a story around um, the, the Liverpool shootout based on body language and what we can see. But the reason that story was created was based on evidence. So evidence that of, of what we do know, so therefore, using all of that evidence, the story created around that lovely exam- example of Carlos was was that it was he was asking his players and actually he was going out to them and, and getting getting their thoughts and their feedback. And because of the story that, that we've created and what we do know about him, that's the story. Whereas it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if, if something like that looked similar with another manager, but that the story and the evidence that we have historically around that manager might mean that the story of, of what that interaction was 
we might have labelled as, and he was there sort of, you know, ripping shreds off off those three players, whatever it might look like, which is fascinating. You're right about the outcome bias being a key thing here because we were guilty of it even in our intro there where we said, oh, Pep Guardiola is coming for criticism for how he handled like one particular moment in one particular match, despite <laughs> having huge success in the other yeah, 55 right? matches this season. So, yeah. yeah. And how do we know? Because, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't work day to day with him. I'm not in that yeah. world. Um, but, yeah. I think that's that's probably about all we've got time for this week. But I did want to, just before we left, Sarah, just to kind of ask you what your your plans are at the moment. Obviously, you were saying earlier, out of nine years, I've forgotten the word that you kind of used, um, but, you know, nine years are kind of fairly Baby smoothie. Intense. That was, yeah, nine years of <laughs> smoothie. Um, what, 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 what are your plans at the moment? Um, so, I mean... I think everything, everything that's good, bad or ugly, everything comes to an end. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've stepped away. I'm, I'm now running my own consultancy um, and independently working, um, still doing some work into football um, with, with various, various players or, or coaches um, and across different, different platforms. So, you know, in, into the military and, and across varying sports as well. So just enjoying lots of variety and, and enjoying a five day week. And I'm not ashamed to say so. Here to that. Um, well, as I, as I mentioned uh, on last week, so that's our, our kind of final uh, normal pod for the for this season. But we probably will be back. I think it's fair to say, Luke, maybe for one or one or two um, in between now and the start of next season. So keep your eye out um, for that. Thanks very much for for listening across the season. Um, and as ever, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do leave a review um, on your podcast platform of choice or get in touch with us on Twitter.